Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. Right. Welcome, everybody, on this fine March Monday, 2023 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Special thank you again to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, for making it possible for us to be here today. I am Remley Crow, and today I am joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Michael Caduce, and Dr. Bill Toon and Dave Page. Um, as a reminder, the name of the article that we are reviewing today is Descriptive Analysis of Emergency Medical Services 72-Hour Repeat Patient Encounters in a Single Urban Agency, and this is hot off the press in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And as always, this discussion is going to be paired with an article that's written by our very own Dr. Tony Fernandez and Michael Caduce in EMS World called Journal Watch. So we encourage you all to check out that article at emsworld.com under education and training. I would like to thank all of you in the audience as you're streaming in for joining us today. Remember, you can use the Q&A feature to ask questions as we go, and we'll bring those into this discussion as a real journal club. Um, so we welcome that. And without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in. So I will welcome Tony and Michael to the stage and Dr. Toon. Um, this study was digging into a kind of hot topic, and the authors call this bounce backs, and their definition of a bounce back was an unscheduled return EMS encounter within 72 hours of the initial EMS encounter. So let's kick it off with a little bit of, you know, why is this an important metric? Why should we care about this study? Why was it important that we took it on? Yeah, and I think that we all intuitively know, particularly folks who are in the field, we see patients repeatedly, uh, sometimes very repeatedly, um, but there, there's not been a good description of, of who these patients are and how they impact uh, our, our profession, um, and particularly uh, different EMS systems. There's been some work on older patients. There's been some work on patients who repeat have repeat visits in the emergency department. But what I really like about this is they're looking at one large system and they're seeing how these, who these patients are and trying to tell us more about them. I think, I think that's excellent, Tony. And I think it also echoes the, a lot of the changes that are being made in federal reimbursements for hospitals. We know that we should send patients home if we think they can survive and do thrive on their own. Um, to me, this is really important. Are we signing refusal forms, having people sign out AMA arbitrarily? Are we making some commitment to our patient to say, hey, we're going to work really, really hard to convince you to go to the hospital because we think there's something really wrong with you, um, as opposed to just, we want to get back to the station and go to bed. Uh, so I think reflecting some of the hospital knowledge and we know some patients are safe when they go home we want to prevent them from getting infections post-op and coming back uh, really reflects our commitment to quality in the pre-hospital setting as well so having this data sort of sets a benchmark of what is the expected return rate 
I love that. This is a good quality of care metric. And that's where the authors pulled it from in the hospital setting. You know, 72 hour bounce back is an important quality metric. I also think that this is a topic that has been studied in a couple of different lights. You know, how do we define that familiar face or the, the repeat EMS encounter? And this is a very specific group, but uh, it, it goes to measure a couple of things in my eyes. One is risk. You know, is it safe to leave that patient at home after what feels like a simple lift assist? And then in addition to risk, there's another piece here for me, and that is, are we getting the right resource to the patient at the right time? And so something that came to mind for me was the, the parable of upstream. You know, you're walking through the woods with your friend and you get to a river and you see that there's a child in the water. And so EMS people, what do we do? <laughs> We're going to dive in and, and get that baby and put the baby back on the side of the bank, right? But then by the time you get there, you hear another voice behind you and there's another kid in the water. And so you swim and get that kid. And you and your friend are getting pretty tired swimming and saving all the children. So you look up and then your friend is walking off into the forest and you're like, hey, what's going on? There's so many children that need saved. And the person's like, well, I'm going to go upstream and see what's throwing them in the water. And so I think at EMS, we're in a really unique position where if we start to understand patients who use EMS repeatedly, we haven't solved the root cause of their issue. And now we're in a position to start to think about what are those root causes and how can we get the right resource there? So I'm very excited about this study and I'm glad that we're here. All right, the objective to describe characteristics of patients who had a 72 hour bounce back and compare those to the other group of patients who did not have a 72 hour bounce back. But before we dive into exactly what they found, let's talk a little bit about the methods of the study. We talk about how important it is to think where the study took place and is this likely to apply in my own setting? And so Tony, perhaps we kick it off with you. Let's talk a little bit about what kind of study this was and where it happened. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> this was great. So they looked at um, data that was collected from a single urban third service EMS agency. They looked for an entire calendar year. And this agency, it was a 911 transporting agency in a city of roughly about 800,000 citizens. They said that there were about 300 uh, EMS professionals, both advanced life support and basic life support employed at this agency. And they, they had about 30 ambulances. Um, when they described some of the demographics of the city, they they referred to about 60% uh, white individuals, 30% black individuals, and about 10% Hispanic. Um, and what was interesting, and I think I, I'd like to see this, and, and it's it's important to, to point this out, 17% uh, of the citizens in this area lived in poverty. And I think that that's a metric we're going to see um, spoken about more and more. I agree. I, th I think it's nice to see how EMS data is being matched with other data to paint a fuller picture for public health. And certainly, you know, these community measures of access to resources become really important. Absolutely. So this was, they, they looked at EMS electronic records, and it's really nice when uh, folks are able to pull their own records and do their own analysis. Um, I thought that this was really interesting. I think I failed to note that the the time frame, I did say it was one calendar year, but it was January 1st, 2021 to December 31st, 2021. And um, yeah, so they looked at patients who had multiple encounters uh, and they looked at those, again, the cutoff was 72 hours or less. Uh, and those were referred to as patients who had bounce back. 
And what they did was they were able to link data using some patient identifiers. So they, they, they use name, uh, first name, last name, and date of birth to link these folks through, throughout their continuum of care and to see um, how often they were seen uh, after their first encounter. Uh, they removed patients, obviously, if the call was canceled before EMS arrived on scene, uh, if there was no patient contact, or there were quite a few, and we'll talk about this in a minute, there were a host of records that lacked identifying information. So they didn't have a first name, last name, or birth date. And that certainly can cause some issues when you're trying to link data. Uh, and they looked, they wanted to compare those who they identified as bounce back patients, again, 72 hours or less for an, an additional encounter. And they compared those to folks who were not bounce back patients and on gender, race, and, uh, and uh, some agent, uh, call specific um, uh, variables. So I thought that uh, what they included was really interesting and in how they identified their patients. And another thing that they excluded, which makes a lot of sense, right, were patients who were dead on arrival. Can't really have a bounce back if the first time you saw them, the patient uh, was deceased. And I think that's a key piece is the first time that they saw the patient, if the patient was DOA in that initial encounter, they excluded them. However, one of their important variables that they were looking at is for patients who had an initial encounter that was not DOA were subsequent, subsequent encounters, cardiac arrest or DOA. Yeah, absolutely. And what they did was, I thought this was interesting. So they looked at the EMS professional's primary impression for the calls. They looked at the, the initial primary impression, and they looked at uh, primary impressions for subsequent calls. And they categorized these calls. Um, so, for instance, the example they give is chest pain and discomfort or uh, chest pain or and on breathing. Uh, those things like that were collapsed into an overall bucket of chest pain. And that leads to some interesting questions later on as we get to as we start to review our our results. So Absolutely. They, also, they also looked at the encounter disposition, and these are things we're all familiar with, treated and transported uh, by EMS, uh, treated and released, either AMA against uh, medical advice or per protocol. Um, and then they looked at things like refused evaluation or uh, refused any treatment by EMS. So we have a, a host of things to look at to kind of describe not only the patient, but the, the event itself. Absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting how they achieved their matching. So perhaps Tony could talk a little bit about how they went about finding repeat patients. Yeah. So they looked for patients who had, um, they were matched on, on name, date of birth, and uh, they looked for incident date and times. And they looked, they looked throughout the record. And again, they matched folks either 72 hours, um, if they were seen within 72 hours or less, or if they were seen uh, greater than 72 hours. Absolutely. And then for their analysis, I like they, they started off with a simpler approach and then moved into the more complex math. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about how did they handle these comparisons from a statistical perspective? 
Yeah, I thought this was this was great. So they they and like you said, they they started off um, with something a little more simplistic and and with to describe percentages and means uh, medians, excuse me, um, when it comes to things like age, when they compared groups, they they used uh, different tests to just identify if there was a difference um, where in they looked at gender, race, dispositions. Um, so they use what's called a Wilcoxon rank sum test, and they use chi-square tests for categorical variables. Um, and they also, after they looked at where they thought these differences were, they developed, they ran a logistic regression model. And the idea for this model was to see what was important after adjusting for other things that, that either they believed were important in advance or that they found out were important from their initial evaluations. Absolutely. And we'll dive into what those factors were, because I think they did a good job at getting ideas from the literature of things that would make sense that might lead to a higher likelihood of a bounce back or a repeat encounter. But we can go ahead and open it up to our other panelists if anyone has anything they'd like to discuss or comment on in the methods before we dive right into what the authors found. I would just wanted to note, this is one of the first studies I've seen where they're looking at post-COVID data. I think a lot of authors are looking at data pre-COVID, sort of with the fear of what's COVID going to do to our data. So I was just really appreciative that these authors looked at a time period that was post-COVID. And I actually thought when we get to results, we can look at respiratory conditions. I'd be interested to know if we think that plays into some of their bounce back can, um, calls or not. You read my mind. I was thinking one of the same things. And I, I think it is important to think 2021, what was happening August 2021, and same with other conditions that were associated with COVID. So we know that in the earlier days of COVID, we saw a spike in cardiac arrest that would usually precede the wave. And so that's something else for us to take in mind as we move into these results. But yes, moving forward in the, the COVID era with data. All right, and I'm not gonna hold back. I'm gonna dive right into how many patients we saw. And you know, Tony, you mentioned this was a, a large urban center and I think that the results definitely support that. So out of 129,000 records in that calendar year, um, the exclusions were listed here. So the bulk of those exclusions were due to cases where there just wasn't any patient contact. So whether that was canceled en route or no patient found or whatever that may be, those were excluded. Um, there was a set of records, and this is one that's important for us to consider, like what biases might be present because we had to exclude these patients, and that was um, records that did not have a patient name or that had a generic name. And I'm guessing that when I hear generic name, I'm thinking of like a Jane or a John Doe, and so they weren't able to match on those. Um, and so that was only out of those 129,000 records, uh, 700 records were excluded due to missing name. Um, and then there were a thousand patients who were dead on initial presentation. And again, that's initial presentation. So those were excluded from subsequent analyses. And that left about 98,000 patient or encounters in the mix. Of those, interestingly, there were almost 4,000 encounters that had a bounce back. And those 3,900 encounters resulted in 5,500 subsequent encounters. So that leads us to think that you know, one patient could have more than one of these encounters that fit the 72-hour threshold that they set. Um, and then there's the 88,000 that did not have a bounce back. Yeah, and to your point about the subsequent encounters, that uh, makes me wonder about the 72 hours. Uh, that, that certainly is an important hospital metric, but... Um, this kind of and all good research right does uh, lead to more questions and we might want to 
in future research kind of tease out, you know, what 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 actually is a bounce back in terms of pre-hospital care? Absolutely. These authors did a good job at setting up a template for how we think about a patient-centered approach versus episodic, right? So most EMS care and data sets are very episodic in nature, but this of linking the patients throughout their encounters with EMS sets us up for the 72-hour mark. And then in the introduction section of this paper, the authors did a good job at mentioning other work where they defined you know, repeat patients in different ways of certain number of counters per calendar year, perhaps. So looking at the different ways that different patients present to EMS. Uh, but I do really like the template that they used here to set up for patient-centered analysis instead of episode-centered. Agreed, absolutely. So let's go ahead and take a look at table one. And we talk about table one a lot. This is usually your demographic table of who is in the population. And it can sometimes have comparisons between groups of interest as this one does. So in this case, table one is looking at the demographics and encounter characteristics for patients that did and did not have bounce backs. Um, so some of the things to look at here are that Age was actually really similar between groups, and that's not something that I initially expected. I would have hypothesized that bounce backs were more likely to happen among patients who were older, but that does not appear to be the case in the way that these data played out. However, what did play out is in gender. There were more encounters involving male patients that resulted in bounce back compared to those that did not. Um, and then when we talk about race and ethnicity, this is a, another key place for us to focus. And Tony and I, as the, the resident st statistical nerds here, talk about this a lot, is there may be statistical significance, but what does it mean from a practical standpoint? And so we see that the p-value here is less than 0.001. However, the real difference in proportions between patients is typically less than a percentage point. And so that's something for us to keep in mind is statistical significance versus practical relevance. Yeah. And I'd also like to point out some of these really small cell sizes um, mm -hmm. that can really, uh, you have to pay attention to that when you interpret these results. Some of this, um, these really small cell sizes can lead you to maybe uh, some erroneous conclusions. Sure. And I do think that's important. And something to applaud the authors for in this case is, you know, when you're doing analyses that are likely to look at equity in care, it is important to try to split out race and ethnicity as granularly as possible. And they did a really good job of that here. So even though, for example, some of the categories are really small, like we would expect Pacific Islander is a smaller category, splitting it out like that lets us at least get a hypothesis going for could there be an inequity here that we need to research. So this is in line with best practice from the American Medical Association on how we should talk about race and ethnicity in research. And so it is important to pay attention to small cell sizes, but it's also very nice that we're able to have this granular of a look. Absolutely agree. All right. So sorry, Emily. Go ahead. Uh, on those same lines, I appreciate when anybody breaks down treated and released AMA versus treated and released. I think that's especially for this study really helpful in looking at we think we fixed you and left and then you bounced back versus we suggested you be transported and you and you refused, which is you're fine, you're right. But then we had to subsequently come back. So I appreciate while there's smaller numbers specifically for treat and released that they broke it down that way, because to me, those are very separate. Those are very different patient populations. That's absolutely a great point. And, you know, I, it is also important. You mentioned earlier, we we're talking in the introduction about the role of EMS communication and influencing, you know, 
fair decision making in terms of, you know, there, there's a difference between you don't want to go to the hospital, do you? And I'm really concerned. And I think we should go get your heart checked out at the ED. Let's go. You know, so I, I think that's a nice point that they've captured here. And you know, taking a look at table one, it, there are some interesting findings with regards to disposition. So if you're just comparing in the encounters without a bounce back compared to the encounters with, the percent transport is lower in the encounters with a bounce back, meaning that more of those who were not transported on that initial visit had a bounce back. And that's something for us to think about when you know, we're doing a release AMA, is there something we could have done to convince them with our body language or our affective domain that they need to come with us to the hospital? Um, in the treat and release, the number's also higher, but that difference is much less. So for those of you who are just listen in listen mode only, treated and released AMA in the non-bounce back population was 13%, compared to almost 18% in the encounters with bounce backs. And then we're talking about treated and released per protocol, that's 1.9% in the encounters that did not have a bounce back, and then 2.6% in the encounters with a bounce back. So a bit different populations, and they've done a good job at stratifying that out here for us. And then that, that group that we talked about, the patient refused evaluation, was overall a pretty small group, and that's going to be something important for us to keep in mind as we go into the next couple of tables. So let's go ahead and hit on table two. I thought this was a really interesting analysis. And what the authors have done here is broke out the EMS clinician primary impression or the field diagnosis for the initial encounter and then the subsequent encounter for patients who had bounce backs within 72 hours. And when we just take a look at initial primary impressions, some of the things that stand out to me are, it seems to be mental health related concerns and pain. Yeah. And so they, they separated some of the pain diagnoses here between non-traumatic and abdominal pain. Um, but if we were to combine those, that would actually probably be the, the top complaint. Yeah. yeah. And again, we, we talked about this a little earlier about uh, collapsing these complaints. And I would love to know what makes up the, that respiratory category and what makes up the bulk of that respiratory category, because that that's that's really interesting to see, um, not only in the initial, but to see that so high in the rankings on on the on these second or subsequent primary impressions. Absolutely, and and to Michael's earlier point, you know, this is happening in a time when the pandemic, there were still big waves of the pandemic going on. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting. No complaints or injury or illness make up a great deal of both of these. So I'm wondering, we're, we're called back to a patient who has no complaints or injury noted. Are we, are we failing to recognize a primary impression here? Or is there truly, we're just coming, we're doing a welfare check and we're coming back. To me, that's a great opportunity for our mobile integrated healthcare resources. Um, I'd be interested to, if they had a, you know, what a breakdown of what, what a no complaint call is. Um, if it's things like welfare checks and stuff, again, mobile integrated healthcare, a great opportunity here. Oh, and you've already got my research wheels turning there. So one of the things I'm thinking about is what was the dispatch on those? Because I could also see a bunch of third-party callers for motor vehicle crashes being involved in a initially, oh, no, I'm fine. And then after the adrenaline wears off, you realize you're actually injured. I wanted to jump in here. Uh, uh, great job, by the way. Great, uh, great article and, and kudos to the authors. It's... Um, uh, it's interesting, you know, Brooke Lerner did a, a study in 2003 showing it was fairly safe to leave hypoglycemic patients. And these data 
seem to support that. The, the rate of bounce back there doesn't seem to be out of out of the ordinary, larger than the, the ones that had no bounce back. Um, it's also, I think, worth noting when you're getting into the world of non-transports, there was um, work done early in New York on high-risk non-transports. So um, the, the types of complaints and the vital signs of the patients that were left could put them into a category. Alejandro and Hollander uh, wrote the first paper on that and had a criteria that then Vilke and Moss have done uh, more research on. I, I liked uh, one of the studies out of Houston that actually called patients back to say, was there a concurrence between the patient's satisfaction and expectation? And what the uh, chart said was a refusal in air quotes. So it's this concept of did both parties agree that non-transport would be the best option. And when they called patients back, some patients said, I wanted to go, but the paramedics wouldn't take me. But the vast majority said, yeah, no, I, I agreed with the paramedics assessment that I didn't have to go. So then th this, this concept of um, being able to follow up, uh, you know, longitudinally, I think is, is one that should be part of our culture, right? It should be part of QI that, that we don't just look at every event as a single event that's not connected to the others and high frequency, high utilization patients that keep calling us back are draining a lot of that, uh, that system. So if we can address those, those ectopic kind of anomalous we're using a lot, we can uh, manage the, the workload a little bit better. I am greatly surprised that it was psychiatric uh, patients that that are in this category with uh, with a higher 16.3% versus 11% bounce back uh, percentage-wise. Uh, that, that is concerning to me just from a mental health advocate uh, standpoint. How is it that uh, those patients ended up being not transported? How does that system see the patient that has mental health problems as a um, as a patient that didn't need uh, transport, and is there, you know, is it a, a matter of uh, how they how they manage that? In some cities, the police transport those patients, and so maybe that was part of it. Maybe it's maybe the mixture of a, a mechanism for suicide intent. Uh, it's it's um, it's interesting. Yeah, and something to highlight here before we, we toss it over to Dr. Toon for some commentary is that these encounters include both transports and non-transports. So it's entirely possible with that group of mental health patients that they were transported, but at the ED, they weren't able to get care that addressed the root cause or long-term care and released within a few hours of ED arrival and then would in, would in turn have a subsequent EMS encounter. So I think what this data does a good job at highlighting is how important EMS can be in community planning and informing the need for additional resources. So, you know, if I was in charge of this community, I'd say, wow, there's probably an unmet need for patients who have mental health concerns and that we may need to plan our resources accordingly. But without the EMS data, it would be really hard to, to get a feel for exactly what and where that need is. And with that, 
Dr. Toon, I'll turn it to you. Hi there. Hear me okay? Yep. So what I'd like to add to this is, first of all, I think it's a very nice study. All the comments so far are really spot on and everything. And now what would be interesting is to begin to look at all of this information and develop the educational curriculum that we could include in primary education as well as continuing education. And then also I would like to see it in the ED clinicals because that if, if they could be talking to physicians or nurse practitioners, you know, uh, hey, what made you decide this patient can go home, you know, versus needs to get admitted and stuff. I, I think there's still one of the, the gaps that's missing that makes me from his from personal experience uncomfortable is when people uh, haven't been developed and trained to make these kinds of decisions. So I, I just think that it would be really neat to develop the curriculum to help enhance this so we are able to have people that make the better decisions. Absolutely. I love that tying it into what we've learned from real field data and bringing that all the way back to initial education, continuing education, our interface with our colleagues in the emergency departments and with the, with models like the uh, ET3 coming out in community paramedicine, uh, thinking through what is the right resource and what is the risk that is involved and, and using our data to help drive those decisions. Because a lot of this has been on, you know, expert research and advice until this point, but now with so much electronic data and linked electronic data to hospital outcomes, we should be able to start to inform those decisions even better and, and start training to your point of, well, you know, if you do have somebody who falls in the high risk refusal category, what does that mean? And, and what tools should we be using to try to get them to the appropriate care? Yeah. And before we move on from this list, these lists, I want to get your thoughts because what something that really surprised me about these lists were this is a large um, metropolitan area and they had substance use non-opioid that made the list. Um, but we all know the opioid epidemic that we're unfortunately right smack dab in the middle of. And opioid use was not either was not did not make the list or that's um, collapsed into maybe respiratory or altered mental status. It, it's, I thought that it was interesting. The absence of that was interesting. And I wanted to see if I was the only one that was surprised about that. No, I also found that interesting. And, you know, I would wonder if it depends on the epidemiology of the region. Are there other substances that are more common in this region, perhaps something like meth versus, I know when I was in Ohio, that was one of the, we would more traditionally see cases involving other substances, not always opioids. Um, I also think it's interesting, and I like how granular these rows are because we could always collapse them up, but it would be hard to expand them out. I know Chris has a great point in the chat here about um, complaints involving psychiatric conditions are kind of a catch-all sometimes, and it's really hard to drill into those, and there's nuances within that category that would be really important to dig into. But in the case of substance use here, we have a couple of different lines that are dedicated to that. And we can also combine that with, well, what are the right resources for somebody who is experiencing substance use disorder? And is the emergency department likely to result in definitive care? I know a couple of months ago, we had a great podcast on some innovative treatments where EMS would initiate that long-term care with buprenorphine in the, for opioids, to your point. Um, but are there other ways that EMS can facilitate that continuum of care to get patients to something more definitive versus we treat your immediate symptom and we'll come back when that immediate symptom represents. 
I was I was also taking a positive look at it and thinking maybe this community just has a really good public access naloxone program where maybe EMS isn't even getting called to some of these calls um, or we've got a really good public health system that's done that education. The one thing I thought, Tody, when you mentioned substance abuse, what I saw that and I said they've separated out alcohol abuse and substance abuse where some substance abuse may actually fall into that alcohol abuse or if we've got mixed um, overdose medications or something like that. Um, and then I said, okay, so if you add substance abuse to alcohol abuse, that raises that percentage up, but still psychiatric complaints is almost double your bounce backs of any of the other co, um, co or any of the other variables. So I just thought that that kind of kept bringing true to me is it's the, we could fix some of this problem. We could fix a huge chunk of our bounce backs. That is a really good point. And this is, you know, looking exclusively at the patients with bounce back. So the initial and the secondary impressions or the subsequent encounter impressions uh, support that notion of there may be a lack of appropriate mental health resources and EMS is you know, covering that gap for now. But if we look at table three, I think this one's really interesting because it's that comparison that the authors saw between those who do have bounce backs and those who didn't. And so this is, again, just raw percentages of those who had bounce backs with that 16% we saw for an initial visit involving a psychiatric condition. And then in the no bounce back group, the, the number one impression was actually injury, which makes sense. EMS was called for an injury, probably transported to the hospital, treated that concern and the root cause of that concern such that another visit wasn't necessary. Um, Is the way but, to read this, uh, I, I just, this, this was, probably the most helpful and the hardest one for me to interpret in this in this paper. So I, I want I want your feedback here if I'm reading this right. Um, here, if the percentage bounce back is higher than the no bounce back, like 16.3 versus 11%, mm -hmm. that's where we really that that's the aha moment in this paper. Yes. The 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 sixteen point five percent under injury sixteen point five percent versus seven percent, uh, so so many more of the patients that were treated for injuries did not call us back within seventy two hours. That to me, these numbers are very similar down the line of most of these complaints. It kind of washes out, except for psychiatric. Am I reading this wrong? Nope, this is it. So if so, it's the for those of you who are in listen-only mode, it is table three, and there's two columns. So one column is just the percent of bounce back patients who had each of these primary impressions, and then it's ordered uh, from the most common among bounce back patients. Um, and then the other column is for those who did not have a bounce back, what were their most common impressions? So anytime the percentage in the bounce back sample is greater, that probably means there was a greater likelihood. And again, we should think about clinical relevance here more than statistical significance because they did have such a large data set. Um, so here for sure, the, the one that sticks out the most is the 16% for patients with a psychiatric condition versus 11% in the no bounce back group. Um, all of the other conditions, including things like pain and uh, seizures even, or hypoglycemia, all of those were relatively similar. I mean, those two populations weren't really different in those regards. That was what we would expect to see. And then yeah, a, a little bit in of an elevation for the bounce back group in alcohol use also, which um, right. is interesting. 7.5% versus the 4%, yes. Am I correct in assuming that for this uh, 
categorization, each patient could actually have multiples of these, or is it that that really every patient has a single primary? So only the primary was really the one played. So psychiatric complaint patients, those 576, could actually have alcohol on board, but it wasn't coded as the primary problem. Is that correct? Right. Right. So the way that the primary impression data element works is it is a single select. So you have to make your most appropriate field diagnosis in that variable. So yes, they could have multiple things going on. However, you pick the one that is most uh, you know, in line with your field diagnosis, what's going to affect wish, your treatment. I so wish they had done some form of either regression or tried to figure out which combo of these things is the one that really to watch out for? Because they're all so similar, except for psychiatric. I wonder if there's a statistical method to tease out. It's really the psychiatric patient with alcohol on board, or it's really the psychiatric patient with abdominal pain uh, that causes the most risk for a bounce back. Does that make sense? Yeah. And they could, sense. Uh, please. Dr. No, go ahead. I was just going to say they there is a mechanism. So there there's there's primary and secondary impressions. Now there's there's a, a good of some good reasons why they wouldn't want to use secondary impression. Um, a lot of times that's not filled out, uh, completed in in high percentages. Um, but they 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 likely could have brought those in. Um, but uh, these are these these are kind of good questions for future research for sure. And I think since it was consistent within one agency, the way that they're using those impressions is probably a bit more consistent as well. So unless we're, if we were to mix in a bunch of different agencies here, we'd probably get more variability in terms of, you know, do I pick, uh, I have a patient who seems to be having a mental health concern as well as has alcohol on board, which one do I pick as my primary impression? Um, but in this case, I would expect that there'll be some similarity within an agency. And so this just tells us that perhaps there is something, you know, to dig further into when it comes to mental health and substance use disorders in this population. And I'd be very curious to see, you know, what are the resources like in this community? Is there a gap that needs filled? Um, and you know, the data are certainly pointing to that maybe there, there's not enough resources to get to the root cause and give definitive care to these patients. Um, I was going to just add into the respiratory cases did what we expect they would do, which in the world of, of COVID, especially sort of the beginning of the year, January, February of their study period, this was in the height of one of our peaks of COVID. So um, it, the, it appears that the providers in, in both the EMS and the pre-hospital setting and the hospital setting did a good job of recognizing which COVID patients or, or respiratory and general patients needed to stay home um, and which ones actually needed to be admitted into the hospital or treated in the hospital and not return. So I, I'm sure there's a large chunk of those respiratory patients that are likely COVID. Um, and I just, uh, looking at the study period, this does play a role in their data. So interesting that Absolutely. that worked out in their favor. And, and that's an important group for us to, to think through too. And you can think all the way at dispatch, if we get a respiratory complaint, what cascade of events is that likely to set off in terms of you know, priority and lights and siren and all of those things. Uh, another group of patients that would probably be contained within the respiratory group that comes to mind for me is patients with asthma. And we know that there are a lot of appropriate treat and release protocols for patients with asthma. And we see that the, the rate of transport is low also among children with asthma exacerbations who are treated on scene, 
with an appropriate device or medication and then um, allowed to recover at home versus transporting them for observation at the emergency department. So it would be interesting as we move into the next phases of this pandemic to split out that respiratory group further and look for things like infectious disease, influenza and COVID versus uh, more long-term diseases like asthma. All right, now the, the part we've been waiting for, the multivariable logistic regression modeling. And I know I've lost a few folks, but this is actually one of the most interesting analyses in my eyes because it's putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I thought the authors did a really good job here at thinking through, well, what are the things that are likely to be associated with a repeat encounter? So they put things like age, gender, the race and ethnicity, and what was the initial encounter disposition. So this gets at Dave's earlier point of patients who we left at home. Um, and the findings here surprised me a bit. I'd be interested to hear from our other panelists as well. Age was not associated with repeat EMS encounters. And this is totally in contrary to the hospital literature, right? We see that advanced age is associated with more repeat encounters or unplanned admissions into the hospital. However, with the EMS data, it's hard to find an odds ratio closer to one than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I, I, and I wonder if for something like this, if looking at deciles of life, right, every 10 years of life is is the right way to to look at age, right? Because we may it, we may find something different um, if we were to bucket our geriatric patients and compare them to our adults and to our peds. Um, I, I wonder if there's something hiding there. That is a, an interesting point. So the way that they used age as a continuous variable assumes that the, the effect would be linear there. But yeah, that would be an interesting point is if we you know, had a, a variable for category of you know, life, lifespan, yeah. life. Yeah, some kind Good of point. stage of life, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then when we get to gender here, it was interesting. Uh, the odds ratio of 0.64 in this case for female means that females were less likely to experience a bounce back when compared to male patients after adjusting for all of these other variables. And so that's a, that's a pretty big difference and you know, something worth noting here. Yeah, and even when, uh, to your point, even when you're adjusting for their uh, encounter dispositions, um, that's still uh, significant. So that is um, that that that's something to, to tease out right there. Why are why what is the difference? What what is driving that difference between male and female? I thought it was interesting too. Oftentimes we talk about atypical chest pain presentation that more that affects females more often than men. So they're doing a good job of picking up at the stuff that we say is atypical um, and recognizing that and um, preventing their bounce back there. So um, to me, there's several atypical presentations and they more commonly occur in, in women. So that was interesting. Absolutely. Um, and then when we get into race and ethnicity, we do see some differences. But again, I would you know, think about the small cell sizes there, too, and think about, you know, are these findings likely stable or would we want more data to analyze the future? But it definitely tells us that there are some things to, to be looking at here um, and perhaps not in the direction that we would initially have predicted based on the hospital literature. So let me, can I ask you uh, to help us interpret this? Um, yeah. Uh, because um, first, when they say uh, they're referent, the referent variable, which is that 
they compared everybody to the white patient, right? So yes. black patients were equally as likely to bounce back as white patients. Okay. And Asian and Latinos were less likely, like 0.3 and 0.4 uh, odds ratio, right? So mm -hmm. less than half of it. But then the Native American category is 3.73, which means there were 3.7 more times more likely to bounce back. And to your point, maybe that's a very small number of uh, Native American patients. Mm -hmm. And also could point to, you know, a particular bias. I, you know, when I look at the number of Native American patients out of 38,000, there's only 156. So maybe a single patient could cause that anomaly is somebody who's a repeat uh, customer uh, having trouble with whatever medical condition they had. Probably not a single patient, but the smaller group probably means that there's more variation. And something that was not in, in this model, and again, with, with small cell sizes, it's smart to keep the model nice and tight like this one, but this did not take into account any of their initial vital signs or their assessment or the underlying etiology of, of why the MS encounter took place. So I, I think this, you know, this doesn't say we have this huge disparity we have to go address right now, but it does say there is an area for future research here. Got it. Okay. Um, very anxious to see what you say about the disposition next, because I have another question for you. Excellent. Yeah, the disposition findings here are very interesting. And Alice has a really great point in the chat that is important for us to keep in mind as we talk about the disposition results. So does the service have mandatory online medical oversight contact prior to a non-transport? And in the paper, it says that they do have to contact online medical control prior to a non-transport. So that in turn, again, thinking about study setting and how that could affect the findings, it's possible that because of that need for online medical direction that the non-transport patterns at this organization are different than one where you perhaps don't have to have the online medical contact before uh, non-transport. So really great point there. Now, what we see in this table four, with reference being transported by EMS, those who were treated and released AMA were about 18% more likely to have a bounce back compared to somebody who was transported by EMS. Um, and the number goes the highest for patient refused evaluation. But remember back to table one, that's a really small group of patients again. So again, the estimate there is likely less stable, but something for us to keep in mind is you know, what are the underlying causes of a patient refusing evaluation? Is there something we can do with the effective domain to overcome some of that and to identify, complete a, an assessment to at least address whether or not this is a high risk situation to leave the patient at home or not? And yeah, and just look to geek out for a second for folks um, who, when you you can tell that there is uh, some smaller cell sizes by those confidence intervals. You can see how mm -hmm. wide they are for patient refused evaluation when you compare them to the others. Um, so just kind of a little uh, pro tip for when our, our listeners are, are evaluating these tables. Absolutely. Now I thought, Dave, you were gonna have another question on this. Uh, well, yeah, I'm uh, I'm trying to just take it all in and see if the numbers make sense with what I think my brain understands, which is what they're saying is um, 
patients who are left are twice as likely or at least as likely or twice as likely to bounce back. Um, and particularly the problems, the problem uh, patients are the ones that were not receiving our medical advice, at least by the chart, they were AMA or refused evaluation. Those are going to be the ones that, you know, to pay attention to. But honestly, it seems like uh, between AMA treated and released and transferred care to another EMS professional, it's all pretty much the same. Uh, mm -hmm. they, it it, it kind of boils down to, uh, yeah, there's a significantly smaller amount of patients that we that bounce back overall, but there seems to, they seem to be, you know, as likely if they're not transported as if they were transported. So patients that are being transported are calling spec two. That's my takeaway. Yeah, I mean that that transfer of care to another EMS professional is is is. Um... Interesting, uh, for sure, because they were transported, uh, at least through this disposition is what there's, that's what we're assuming, right? We, we, we don't know from this disposition for sure that the other EMS uh, providers initiated transport for these patients, but I think that's the assumption. And that, um, that certainly is, is one of the more interesting takeaways uh, from this table, because you would think that just transporting versus no transport would be uh, the 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 kicker there, but that this one um, disposition definitely brings in some questions. And I think we would have to know more about the system where this took place. So I don't know if in this system they're transferring care to another EMS professional at a different agency that may be you know a BLS only agency. We know that this service has both ALS and BLS, or if they're transferring to another unit within their own service. Um, but both of those things would be interesting to take into context with that particular group. But I, I do think one of the take-homes here is, okay, some of those things that might sound like simple treat and release or you know, lift assist could actually have some risk for a, a bounce back encounter. And that's something that we should think about. Another thing that you know isn't really addressed is, are all bounce backs inappropriate and a bad thing? Not necessarily. Right there, there could be a, a fair reason to say, "Hey, your condition right now means that if you, as a patient, want to stay home and consult with your primary care physician, I'm comfortable, you know, with your vital signs the way they are right now. With that, however, if things change, you do need to call us back." So I, I think you know it's not so much good or bad, but this is something for us to take into account and see if it meets our definition and our tolerance for risk of a bounce back. And if we have the resources to come back with a bounce back. I think it's interesting. I wanted to pick up to about uh, what Alice said in the chat, which is that at least in the studies, Alejandro and Hollander did it back in the nineties, but then it got repeated and repeated and repeated. Mm -hmm. The use of medical control with patients over the age of 65 who are refusing caused more patients to be transported but it doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't cause more bounce backs. Right. And so this is, this is really interesting to kind of now uh, sort of, it's the next chapter in, yeah. So we took them and maybe they were seen very briefly in the ER or not seen at all. And they walked out and they called us again. Uh, and I like this um, more provocatively to do further, more in-depth analysis of, of this, it's the first time we've seen this kind of longitudinal follow-up, and it it really does help us kind of 
think about the entire system and and uh, repeat customers. So, and another important group that isn't in these tables per se is the group of patients where the subsequent encounter included a cardiac arrest or a dead on arrival. Now it was a small number, but you know not something insignificant from a, a clinical perspective. There were twenty cases of. Um, cardiac arrest and 37 cases of dead on arrival within 72 hours of an index visit. So from a quality management perspective, this is one where I may want to go and do a narrative review and dig into, well, were these preventable or anticipated death? So something like a patient who was on hospice that I respond to, it may not be an unanticipated event for that patient to be dead on arrival at the next encounter, if there is a next encounter. But in any case, I think a thorough narrative review of those patients could help inform the system on, you know, where, where are there areas where we have room for improvement or, you know, other ways that the system could be helping uh, these patients as well. You know, I'm glad you picked up on that because I, I was thinking when I read that, I, I was thinking that's pretty gutsy. Uh, there's not a lot of ambulance services who would be willing to put out there a number of patients who, you know, could represent a potential lawsuit or problem because, hey, um, we left them and they died. And so uh, who knows, maybe that was all mitigated by a very careful review of all of them saying, okay, we're safe. But a lot of people tend not to want to publish and share in the community, what their numbers are all about, because they fear that moment of, oh, maybe that's going to uh, reflect badly on us. I think it takes a, a huge amount of humility and courage to just show your numbers. And I really appreciate that they did that. It, it helps the whole provision. Yeah. And just to add to that point, they, they said in their article that that might likely represents an underestimate because not all patients who die are attended by an ambulance. So um, there are there are certainly other folks that that died who would not be in this data set. So that's um it's an interesting takeaway. I thought it was important too. They note that that's a higher rate than what's been published before in one other study. While we don't have a, a, a benchmark here to necessarily look at, um, there is something here that could be truthful. And so I think that the further data review is like, gosh, this might be higher than we think it is. I'd rather you say that. And we're going to go look at it rather than um, what Remily is saying, which is uh, we're just going to sort of sweep it under the rug and hope that nobody notices that we're not reporting that data set. So really yeah. interesting. Really good points because um, in in one of the non-transport studies we did, the families reported taking their own patients into the hospital and with bad outcomes. So um, so <laughs> it it it's absolutely the case that people may lose trust in the ambulance service and just do it themselves, and potentially either without care or bad care or poor transport, but poor results. And we don't know that because not not nothing wrong with this study, but it just we're not we don't know that if we don't go to the you know tracking of the human versus whether the human used the same ambulance service to call or not. Yep, and that's a, an important limitation. And the authors do a good job at highlighting some of the limitations. And like Tony said early on in this project, good research asks you know makes us ask more questions. And there's certainly some more areas, including looking at the linked hospital data for patients who were transported on that initial encounter and see if there's information from there that we can get. We're also tying back to dispatch, what information was gathered at dispatch that could help. Um, 
And so I think in you know last couple of minutes, I'll give the panelists time for a final thought, but a couple of limitations that we should keep in mind and all studies have limitations. So this is a natural part of research is thinking through the patients who are missing demographic information. For me, the Jane and the John Doe stuck out, even though it was a really small group of patients, but I would think that those are at high risk because the reason that you couldn't obtain their name is probably due to severe illness or injury. Um, and then the... Uh, then it's possible, and this goes along with what Dave was saying earlier, that, or Dave and Tony both said earlier, around patients who are dead on arrival may not always have a subsequent EMS encounter or may not have full documentation, including you know the name and demographics that would have been required to match. So there's potential for underestimation there, as well as in, in cases where another agency would respond or they went by their private vehicle to the hospital. And Remley, just to just to clarify what you said, you're concerned about the 30,052 patients out of 130,000 that had no patient contact, correct? That's what you're um, saying. Could... Some of those patients, maybe. I'm I'm more interested in the ones where it said generic name. So it was all it was only a few patients. It was not a huge. But my the thought is I see the yeah. 200 that are generic. Yeah. Yeah, those patients Got probably it. have missing name for a reason is my suspicion. Understood, understood. Thank you for um, clarifying that. Yeah, but I again, I think this is a really well done study and the authors should certainly be commended for their, their bravery in displaying these data and setting a template for future work and other agencies to repeat this analysis. And so I know we've got just a couple of minutes left. I'll open it to our other panelists for final thoughts before I wrap us up. Yeah, you know, and I'll start. I'll just I want to you know commend the authors. This is a really interesting study. It's it's one of the first um, studies to look at this on the pre-hospital level uh, in this way and in a large system. And I think that um, you know it's really easy to, to to nitpick, but I think overall this is a really important addition to the literature. And um, and yeah, congratulations to the authors for getting it published. Yeah, I think great study. And when you are setting the tone for something that's not been looked at before, you're willing to take the um, sort of the courageous curiosity to go look at something new. Um, the, my standout was the, the first paragraph in the last sentence of the discussion was nearly one fifth of bounce back patients were evaluated but not transported by EMS. Often, most of them were against medical advice, and that uh, that represents an opportunity for intervention. Um, and that would be something if I was leading this service, I would say, okay, um, we have an opportunity here to to look into further investigation it to do more research to draw more questions um, and really see is this something we can be doing to prevent a little bit more of is this not a landmark index article in my opinion because no one's ever coined the term bounce back for EMS it's very common to talk about bounce backs in the ER and has to do with it has great repercussions for funding and reimbursement and and your metrics but we haven't quite ever done that with EMS and so they've coined a term and they've you know given an initial piece and i'm i'm going to encourage anyone who doesn't know about our research uh, summit and workshop that we're having at uh, in Austin at ESO to uh, perhaps consider that doing this with multiple organizations uh, in a multi-institutional study is is definitely something that could happen uh, at some of these these um, workshops and invite you all to come to our prehospitalcare.org website. And um, we will have one in the fall as well. So 
uh, look ahead towards uh, towards September so that we can we can definitely continue the work that these authors have started. Absolutely. A great opportunity to continue this foundational work, which I absolutely agree with that sentence. Uh, and my takeaways on this are around the bigger role that EMS data can play in communities. So thinking through aspects like community planning and even uh, to Dr. Toon's earlier point around initial and continuing EMS education. So again, huge kudos to the authors and thanks for taking on this great work. It's no easy feat to link this many patients and then to publish with this kind of integrity. Uh, so thank you very much to them. Now I do have the really unpopular task of wrapping us up. Thank you to the audience for all of your great participation. As a reminder, we're going to have the education version of Research Journal Club podcast on Friday, March 24th, and we'll be back here again with the clinical version of the Journal Club podcast next month on April 10th. Thank you all for listening and look forward to seeing you again on the next one. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data.